Well, that was the opening music to Paths of Glory. You're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. And on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from North Bend. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles. I want to welcome everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and our uh, podcast covering Paths of Glory from 1957. A, a, a film that is, uh, it would be an understatement to say this film is intense or terrifying. Uh, it's one of Kubrick's best, I think. And uh, everyone in it is so believable. It's just amazing to me. And I'm struck by how it carries the message of the terror that went on in those trenches during World War One and in war and the callousness of the uh, military leadership to the to the soldiers just frightening i i think this film could not have been made in color i just i just think the black and white intensifies the the drama and and the uh utter terror that those men had well and you get these great contrasts between the palace where they're kind of headquartered where it's very light and airy and open and spacious and and then these cramped like holes in the ground where the colonel is living you know in the trench he's got this bunker and uh the general makes this comment of like well you've got quite a little cozy bivouac here or something like that and you know and and kurt douglas's character uh is like well i'm sorry i don't have many places to sit you know it's like it's it's the contrast between the two worlds is really stark it, it is and back in the palace i mean it's like fine food and wine and and dances and it's like they're in a different world from this horrible terror that's going on in the battlefield i feel like it's, it's sort of a game for the generals and the the command and you know you get that opening scene where the one general george mccready and adolf manju they are talking about this uh taking the, the anthill General Moreau, is it Moreau? Uh, I, I, that's close enough for me. <laughs> my French is my French is very poor. He was the division commander, played by George McCready. He puts up a, a resistance to the idea of trying to take the ant hill and, and saying it's impossible. And you know, have you seen the state of the regiment? And General Boulos. <laughs> Hello, George. How are you? <laughs> wonderful seeing you again. Really wonderful. Well, this is splendid. Superb. Well, I've tried to create a pleasant atmosphere in which to work. Well, you've succeeded marvelously. I wish I had your taste in carpets. <laughs> and pictures. Hey, much too kind, George. Much too kind. Uh, sit down, George. Thank you. I really haven't done very much. The place is much the same as it was when I moved in. Paul, I've come to see you about something big. It's top secret and must go no further than your chief of staff and not to him, unless you can trust his discretion. Of course. A group of armies is forming on this front for an offensive very soon. Headquarters is determined to make a complete breakthrough. Why are you smiling? I'm really sorry. I thought for just a moment I knew what you were going to say. Please go on. I never knew you were a mind reader. What did you think I was about to say? Something about the anthill. You are a mind reader. Well, it is a key position. It's in my sector. To be perfectly honest, I've heard some talk. You know, there's nothing really secret around headquarters. Well, what do you think? Well, it's the key to the whole German position in this sector. They've held onto it for a year now. 
And it looks as though they'll hold on to it for another year if they want to. Paul, I have formal orders to take the anthill no later than the 10th, as the day after tomorrow. That comes pretty close to being ridiculous, don't you think? I don't imagine I'd be here if I really thought that. Uh, Paul, if there's one man in this army who can do this for me, it's you. It's out of the question, George. Absolutely out of the question. My division was cut to pieces. What's left of it is in no position to even hold the anthill, let alone take it. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Well, Paul, there was something else I wanted to tell you. However, I'm sure that you'll misunderstand my motives in mentioning it. What was it? Oh, you'll be bound to misunderstand. However, as your friend, maybe I should tell you. What are you trying to say, George? Paul, the talk around headquarters is that you are being considered for the 12th Corps. The 12th Corps? Yes, and without another star. Now I've pushed it all I can. The 12th Corps needs a fighting general, and you're overdue in that star. We both know that your record is good enough for you to refuse this assignment on the grounds you've stated. No one would question your opinion. It's simply get someone else to do the job. So, you shouldn't let this influence your opinion, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, have a cognac? No, thanks, Paul. Not before dinner. George, I'm responsible for the lives of 8,000 men. What is my ambition against that? What is my reputation in comparison to that? My men come first of all, George. And those men know it, too. I know that they do. You see, George, those men know that I would never let them down. That goes without saying. The life of one of those soldiers means more to me than all the stars and decorations and honors in France. So, you think this attack is absolutely beyond the ability of your men at this time? I didn't say that, George. Nothing is beyond those men, once their fighting spirit is aroused. Well, Paul, I don't want to push you into it if you think it's ill-advised. Don't worry, George. You couldn't do that if you tried. Of course, artillery would make an enormous difference. What artillery support can you give me? Well, I'll see. What about replacements? We'll see what we can do, but I feel sure that you can get along with what you have. I just do it. Oh, Paul, I knew that I was right to come to you. You are the man to take the anthill. Now, as far as that star is concerned, yeah, I have nothing to do with my decision. If anything, it will sway me the other way. I realize that perfectly, Paul. Now, when do you say you'll see this coming off? No later than the day after tomorrow. We just might do it. But it's 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 like this little back and forth chess game uh, between the two of them because he he. I think he always had every intention of doing what the uh, Adolf Menjou, uh character, his character, General George Brulard, uh, wanted him to do, and and it, and it kind of comes full circle at the end of the movie when uh, General Boy, George does it ever. Brulard is like saying, "Well, you you played that well to Colonel Dax. You know, you've been angling for his his uh, command the whole time." And and Kurt Douglas's character is like, "What are you talking about? That is not what I've been doing." matter to my attention. Colonel Dax, how would you like a General Miro's job? His what, sir? His job. Let me get this straight, sir. You're offering me General Miro's command? Come, come, Colonel Dax, don't overdo the surprise. You've been after the job from the start. We all know that, my boy. There may be many things, sir. But I'm not your boy. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply any biological relationship. I'm not your boy in any sense. You're trying to provoke me, Colonel? Well, why should I want to do that? Exactly. It would be a pity to lose your promotion before you get it. A promotion you have so very carefully planned for. 
Say, would you like me to suggest what you can do with that promotion? Colonel Dax, you will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Colonel Dax, you're a disappointment to me. You have spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. You really did want to save those men. And you were not angling for Miro's command. You're an idealist. And I pity you, as I would the village idiot. We're fighting a war, Dax, a war that we've got to win. Those men didn't fight, so they were shot. You bring charges against General Miro, so I insist that he answer them. Wherein have I done wrong? Because you don't know the answer to that question. And he exploded. He was so angry that that was even in the mind of the uh, of the corps commander, Adolf Manjou. Yeah. But, you know, it's not only... It was also a, a political power game. Oh, totally. You could just, like, chess, chess pieces. And that's evident in that so-called, quote, trial, where right. there, there really is no uh, defense. He's not allowed any kind of defense for these... Well, they Soldiers. they don't call any witnesses. They don't. They're not taking. No. They're not taking stenographic notes. They, it's, it's just sort of like uh, a formality. And and I, the the stoicness of Kurt Douglas's character. He he knows that he's sort of part of the machine, and he can only do so much. You know, if this had been a modern day movie or something, I I, I was I had like these expectations that he was going to present this amazing case and he was going to sway them to like realize that the general Moreau was was a bad dude and nope I mean it's it's just like it just plays out exactly like you know the the central command wants it to play out a horrible horrible tragedy that has that that, that just illustrates the lack of concern for the soldiers in these horrible trenches you know it's interesting too one of the characters in it that struck me, and I, I saw, well, first of all, I saw this movie when I was in high school, and uh, it, it didn't have the kind of impact that it would have later when I saw it in college and since then. You saw it in high schools in the theater, right? So you, that would have been interesting. Yeah, in, in, in the Judith Theater, but, you know, I was probably 16 or 15 at the time, so it was, I don't think I had the kind of in, intense reaction that I had and then when I watched it now for today's podcast it was like oh my lord the the utter disregard that these people had it was all further in their own careers and even one of the one of the characters that's a lieutenant Wayne Morris's character who uh, is supposed to he takes them on he takes some of the troop on a on a uh, search and uh uh, late night foray uh, to see how much strength there is at the anthill, but when the when they when it gets tough, he runs away. Well, not well. Not only does he run away, but he's drunk uh, going out. There. He's drunk, yeah. And then he he freaks out, thinking that they're under attack, and throws a grenade and ends up killing one of his men. Yeah, and then covers it all up. And and Kurt Douglas knows about it. I mean, he he believes the story of the guy that survived that night. But again, he can't he can't really do anything about it. And I think the whole 
God, the whole movie is just like so well summed up in the last three minutes. You know, it's it's just and that look on Kurt Douglas's face when he gets the order that they have to go back to the front. Um, yes, yes. I mean, Kurt Douglas did such an amazing job in this movie, and and I'm uh, you know being I, I read that it was his production company that was uh, was in charge of this putting this together. Yeah, he really wanted this made, and and. Uh... He really worked with Kubrick on this, and then I think he worked with him on Spartacus. The facial expressions are so telling. There's a lot of nonverbal acting going on in this movie. I I uh, read where the story is loosely based on a true story. When four French soldiers were executed in 1915 during World War One, for failure failure to follow orders, and then in uh, later in 1934 they were exonerated. Uh, and I guess it the, the, they based the story on that. The th- it's interesting too that they released this film on Christmas Day. I mean, jeez, <laughs> imagine I'm gonna, I'm going to go see Kurt Douglas. Hey, it's Christmas holiday, kids. You want to go see a movie? Let's go see Kurt Douglas. Wow, that'd be oh my something. goodness! A subtle little thing that caught me on the poster for one of the posters for the film. It shows Douglas going over the top of the trench with a revolver in his right hand, and his left hand is formed almost to look like a claw. Yeah. It's just, it's a brutal, brutal poster. I mean, it's beautifully done. But Yeah, and in the background, it's got a, like, a turquoise uh, color background with these red splashes yeah. of, of paint, and it looks like a bomb is exploding, but it's red, so you think that it's, you know, like blood exploding over uh. the... And and the and it's really only a two-tone paint uh, painting. It's the turquoise and the and the red, mainly, a little bit of yellow. But um, yeah, it's that's an effective poster. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And, and the other thing about the film, I it it wasn't a big success. I think it kind of broke even. But the theme of it probably uh, maybe just didn't play well in the popular. Uh, culture of the day. I, I did want to mention the genius of Kubrick, though. I mean, every film I see of his, I just amaz- it's amazing how he can bring something totally different to, to a story than maybe uh, most, if not all, other directors. Even it's a simple film that he made in 1956, The Killing, with Sterling Hayden. It's just so well done. It I I can't say enough about how excellent he he, he was, and he only I shouldn't say only he made sixteen films. Yeah, it's not a lot, career. and three documentaries. Each one of them is uh, is a masterpiece in its own way, I think. Um, but you know what I was surprised about was the running time. Honestly, I thought it was going to be over two hours, and I I thought a lesser director would have would have had that movie running over two hours for sure. And I, it moved so fast, and it, it was like there was no downtime. It was just boom, 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 and it, it kept going all the way to the end. What was really cool was that because it moved so quickly that that last two minutes where they just sort of linger on each of those soldiers' faces in the, in the cafe. Oh, I know. It, it felt like an eternity. Everything else up to that point had just been so tightly like paced and and i think by doing that and then slowing it down at the very end really made that scene even more powerful 
I was watching those those faces, and every one of those men knew they were doomed because oh, yeah. the casualty rate was so high. And even if you survived, you could have be you could be injured for life, either physically or mentally. How about that scene where they were talking about death? The fact that they're not so you're not so much afraid to die, but you're afraid of being hurt. And how the explosion was the worst because that can just turn you to hamburger. And that was like the, this is the kind of stuff that they sit around and think about. You know, they have this they have a lot of downtime between attacks and and then there's these moments of like intense, like visceral terror when they're when they're having the when they're actually in the in the battle. I think that must have driven driven some people just a little bit crazy, like that downtime and, and sitting there thinking about, well, how, how am I probably going to die the next time I go over the edge of the trench? And, and there was no end to it. It went on for like years. It does speak, though, to the, to the, to the ability of, of Kubik to, to fit it into 88 minutes. Yeah, it's amazing. So tightly wound. I think I think it must have been 10 times more difficult to make it short like that and that fast-paced than to let it linger on. I've seen some movies that'll go two or three hours that have nowhere near the impact of this film. Yeah, the first 30 minutes was all about the battle and what was happening with the general and how he was ordering his own troops to barrage the the his, his own trenches, you know, it's like... Incredible, yes, and you know, and, and to the into the to the commanders, it was sort of like the spectator sport. You know, they were all safe, way back Ugh. behind, watching things through binoculars and spy glasses, and and uh, you know, they they had no concept of what it was like to be down there during a during an attack. I feel like, and then the next thirty minutes or so, not quite, yeah, maybe maybe about the next thirty minutes, maybe a little longer, was sort of the court martial and leading up to that. And then the last bit was the what happened after that. But yeah, it's very clearly like in three acts, but they move really quick. They do. I was struck by the uh, the uh, excellent acting that was done by the uh, the uh, soldier that was transmitting messages from headquarters to the field when he got those orders. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what his job was other than just kind of a central dispatch point. And he realized that the general was saying to fire on his own troops. Where in heaven's name are they? On the left. Where on the left? Zero plus one, and they're still in the trenches. They're not advancing. Miserable cowards. They're not advancing. The barrage is getting away from them. They're still in the trenches. Yes, sir. Captain Nichols. Yes, sir. Order the 75s to commence firing in our own positions. Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir, but I respectfully ask the Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir. Then carry it out, Captain. Yes, sir. Hello, Polygon. This is the vision. Batteries 1 and 2 commence firing on coordinates 32, 58, 78. Batteries 1 and 2 to commence firing on coordinates 32, 58, 78. Over.
General, the battery commander reports those are our own positions. He says it must be a mistake. Confirm the order, Captain. Yes, sir. There is no mistake. The order is confirmed. Battery commander respectfully reports he cannot execute such an order unless it is in writing and signed by the general. Over. General, battery commander respectfully reports he cannot execute such an order unless it is in writing and signed by the general. Give me that phone. Yes, sir. General Miro speaking. Battery commander speaking, sir. The troops are mutinying, refusing to advance. Fire as ordered until further notice. With all respect, sir, you have no right to order me to shoot down my own men. Unless you are willing to take full and undivided responsibility for it. Captain Russo, are you going to obey my order? I must have a written order before I can execute such a command, sir. Supposing you're killed, then where will I be? You'll be in front of a firing squad tomorrow morning. That's where you'll be. Hand over your command and report yourself under arrest to my headquarters. And then they all... There was a whole... That was the other thing. They... They got uh, depositions, or whatever the term would be, uh, from the people that actually verified that the general had ordered firing on his own troops. That isn't even allowed to be presented at the trial. They just whitewash it. Well, he got it after. He, well, he got it after they'd already been killed. Um, he he got those sworn yeah, statements. Been, yeah. Oh, I thought that was before. No, oh, it you're was, right. It was after. It was a dramatic yeah, it was scene. Too late. But it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Like it, the thing is that, that that's the thing is is that's what I was thinking was going to happen. That he's going to get these sworn statements from these people that are going to show like clearly that the general is is crazy, and it was too late. And and really, it wouldn't have mattered in the in the trial anyway. The quote unquote trial or, or court martial because no evidence was presented. It's just a wonderful film. I, I just a, a bit about some of the actors. I found I found out in in, in kind of looking into Kurt Douglas's background to to uh, earn money for for school and uh, he in the summer he was a wrestler in a carnival. <laughs> as he was growing up and uh, Adolf Manju, the uh, the corps commander was in films from 1914 to 1958. Just, I mean, that's like, that was a long career. Yeah. And Ralph Meeker, who was one of the victims of this whole tragedy, just a wonderful actor who did a film called Kiss Me Deadly in 1955 where he played Mike Hammer. Just a, he was the perfect Mike Hammer character in this mystery. And it just goes on and on. It's filled with these really outstanding performances and those three soldiers when they're sentenced to being murdered or killed the next day yeah in that horrible place they were hanging out those scenes were was it timothy so carey intense. timothy carey was he yeah like, he was one he was the one that on the, the way one. to the execution he was having like a complete breakdown and he was yes he had to be held up by the, That's the priest and and uh, and and then the then the other guy uh, was unconscious because he'd gotten in a fight, it, and yeah, he was probably uh, in a coma. Yeah, and and it was just crazy that the general was like, "Well, just pinch him on the cheek when when he when you stand him up on the stretcher because they tied him to yeah. a stretcher, and then pinch him on the cheek so that he can wake up because we want him to be awake when he's shot." It's like okay, yeah. and and the intense uh process they went through the 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 whole 
ceremony for that shooting was amazing. But I I did like the fact that Douglas was able to get some degree of of uh, revenge on Wayne Morris when he made him be the one that put the blindfolds on and all at the shooting, at the execution. So the, the plot is, is, I guess we've been all around it. Uh, it's like 1915 or 1916, and the trench warfare just drug on forever, it seems like. And the French army, uh, this corps, is, is, is uh, ordered to take the anthill, and so it results in this brutal, brutal battle where they retreat. They're just unable to go because they're all being killed. And uh, the general... George McCready's character, in order to get him out of, out of the trench, fires, orders the firing on his own troops to get him out of the trench. And then uh, to cover this whole mess up, they have to select. Originally, I think the, one of the one of the proposals was they kill a hundred people. Well, that's what General Moreau wanted. He wanted a hundred men to be 100. shot. Probably all the witnesses to what he'd done, basically. But then they they each each battalion, I guess it would be selected one person just randomly or or not so randomly to well yeah that's it yeah that's that's true um to be the victims of this and then that and then they're put on trial i hate to use the word trial because it's just not it's like it's the decision is already made before they even have this thing pomp and circumstance yeah and uh, the court commander manju does not show up which is kind of an early sign that he's going to jettison the other general, McCready, because of this whole mess. He's just going to get rid of all of them. Yeah, yeah. I think he just doesn't uh, want to be associated with it because he knows something's something's not right. But it's not like he does anything to prevent it from happening either. So Not at all, no. He's got to protect his own career because he's probably looking to be a higher-level general in the French army. 
What's really terrifying to me is that it's based on a true story. It actually, this, in some way, this happened to four soldiers in 1915. Yeah. Lord help us. Well, and, and I, I kind of got the feeling that <sighs> one of the messages of the film was that there's probably not that much difference between, uh, you know, it's like war brings out really the worst in people. And, or, and, and I suppose, I guess it could bring out the best in people under certain circumstances. But um, like, I, I wonder if, you know, a lot of the duration of this war was perpetuated by things like this on both sides, right? Like, the, the fact oh, that they, think, yeah. the fact that the commanders didn't really view the soldiers as human beings and more as like statistics. And, and you know, when Kurt Douglas was asking the general, well, what do you think the casualty rate's going to be on storming the anthill? And it was like over 50% were going to die, at, at least. I mean, it was like... At least, a minimum. A minimum. Of, and, and Kurt Douglas has his look on his face like, uh, are you serious? You really want to do this? And again, he, he, he doesn't have any leeway to, 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 to not do what the general wants. Like, he's got to follow orders. I, I felt like everybody during that uh, execution scene, was it was just like this machine that was running... And there was no way that any one person there could have stopped it. And I even feel like the guy no. that was reading the charges, who was sort of the prosecutor, was was thinking like, holy crap, Like, are we really going to do this? It looked that way when you looked at his face. He looked like he was hardly believing that it was going to happen. But but it, yeah, exactly. The, the facial expressions and the, the way that he read those the names very quietly. And I felt like he, like again, really excellent acting and directing. Uh, and a lot of nonverbal acting was, was wow, it was really great. Um, but anyway, yeah. So you were you were talking about the plot. I kind of got us sidetracked again. Well, it, they, it's they, these three soldiers are selected at, at just you know out of out of nowhere. They did they had not done anything wrong. I mean, and then they're they're uh, they're convicted in this terrible trial, and they're going to be executed the next day. I think it's the next day. Yeah. Yeah. This is all happening just, within like a week. It just rolls right over them. Yeah. This is yeah. all happening within a few days, and and the fact that uh, Colonel Dax was out on the battlefield, and then like a day later, or maybe yeah, like a day later, he's in the he's in this courtroom. Like, how did he? How did he do that? Like, how did he hold it together? Like, that's some that's just some serious compartmental compartmentalization of of what's going on. Well, the actual execution itself, the 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 uh, three of them, all that pomp and ceremony, took a fairly significant a piece of the film in terms of time. It felt like it was like and ten just, minutes. Yeah. It just drove home the point of, of of how out of control this whole thing was. I mean, everybody on everybody involved in that was preordained to have those roles because of the way it happened. It's just amazing. And then the way that the general uh, Moreau was kind of like gloating almost about how well they acted, and you never know if one of them is going to just do something that'll unnerve the other I troops. Know. But they they were just so you know, uh, yeah, it was it was sickening. It was sickening. Manju gets rid of him too. Yeah, that well, scene yeah. where the two of them are they're all they're 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 this very polite, sophisticated. The conversation, and then uh, McCready f- 
realizes that he's going to be offed. He's out. Yeah. I'm awfully glad you could be there, George. This sort of thing is always rather grim. But this one had a kind of splendor to it, don't you think? I have never seen an affair of this sort handled any better. The men died wonderfully. There's always that chance that one of them will do something that will leave everyone with a bad taste. This time you couldn't ask for better. Yes? Yes, Colonel? You wanted to see me, sir. Oh, yes. <laughs> come in, Colonel. Come in and sit down. Hmm. Oh, Colonel Dax. Your men died very well. Would you like some coffee, Colonel? Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, by the way, Paul, it's been brought to my attention that you ordered your artillery to fire on your own men during the attack on the anthill. I did what? Who told you that? Well, Colonel Dax came to me last night with the story. Colonel Dax, I've always known that you were a disloyal officer, but I never dreamed that you would stoop to anything so low as this. General, I've sworn statements from Captain Nickel, your artillery spotter. Captain Rousseau, the battery commander who refused your order. I think it's infamous. Absolutely infamous. Then there's no truth at all in the charge made by Colonel Dice. <laughs> I don't see how you could even ask me that. You cannot imagine how glad I am to hear that, Paul. I'm certain that you'll come through it all right. I'll come through what? There'll have to be an inquiry. An inquiry? But it won't amount to much. Those things never do. The public forgets. Public? You've got to have the right to clear your name. You cannot allow... Such vile insinuations against your character to go undenied. So that's it. You're making me the goat. The only completely innocent man in this whole affair. I have only one last thing to say to you, George. The man you stabbed in the back is a soldier. Had to be done. France cannot afford to have fools guiding her military destiny. And then he he storms out of the room. And Manju was like unflappable. I read where um, he and Kubrick got into one shouting match because Kubrick wanted to do several retakes. I'm not sure which scene it was that he was retaking of Manju. And Manju said, that was as good as it's going to be. That was excellent. And, and uh, he just blew up when Kubrick said he wanted another take. <laughs> and it went on and on. And Kubrick just sat there. And when the, when Manju was done ranting, he said, Kubrick said, okay, let's go ahead and make that next shot. And <laughs> it was like, it was un, he was unflappable. He was going to get that next take, no matter what Manju wanted to do. Well, I mean. I, I found in reading, it, Manju was, well, he could be prickly to work with, I think, <laughs> would be a good word. Well, I mean, the director is the one who's directing the movie, right? And and uh, yes. the actors are hired to act in the movie. And yeah. so I can understand why Kubrick was like, okay, well, I'm, now that you've had your tantrum, can we continue on, please? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get this wrapped up today. Yeah, I've, I read where... Uh, it, there was a lot of difficulty in getting the money to put this film together because the major studios really didn't want to do it. They, MGM reject, yeah. rejected the idea because they felt the film would be unfavorable to it was it'd be received unfavorably to uh, European distributors and audiences. 
It took a while. Finally, United Artists came up with the money to back it because they knew Douglas was going to be in the lead. I can see where it would, would be a little bit hard to make a decision on that film. Well, let's see, this was right during, this was after World War One, and it was during the Korean War, right? So this was happening. The, well, the Korean, Korean War ended in 53. Okay, but so the it was French, after the Korean War. The French had just kind of gotten involved in Vietnam, and they were, they were pulling out of there after the, right. after the fall of Dien Bien Phu, I think, in 1955. So, and then they had all this trouble going on in Algeria, that oh, we've watched in the right. in the Battle of for Algiers, yeah. So I can imagine this film was not well received in France. I don't know that, but it didn't it didn't do all that well financially. I think, like I said, I think it broke even. Well, it was That's it was it. Uh, uh, it is in the Library of Congress uh, as being yes. culturally significant, his, culturally historically and aesthetically significant. So it's in the National Film Re- Registry. Um, which yeah, that if if any film deserves to be in there, it's it's this one. I mean, it's, it's this one. I know. It, it's interesting because it is described as an American anti-war film, and it's. I feel like they chose World War One to give it some distance. Like they could have chose something yes. in World War Two. I'm sure there were things in World War Two that uh, could have been, you know, great for a movie like this uh, for the plot and everything, but. Um, Something about the brutality of that trench warfare, too, and just the, the futility of trying to cross this, this field that's completely bombshelled to take this totally meaningless hill, you know, and just to hold it, and that that, that somehow has some significance, you know, and is going to make some difference in, in the tide of the war. I mean, just that concept alone is so futile, and I think that there's yeah. a lot to be said for setting it during World War One. Oh, I agree, because it gave it 40-plus years of distance from the actual event. I think it would have been a big mistake to do it based on World War Two or, or Korea, because yeah. they were just too close. Too close, yeah. Um, I, I would want to just circle back for a minute to the final scenes of all the soldiers in that uh, mess hall, and they bring on this German, young German woman to, to come on stage. And like you said earlier... For the first five minutes of that scene, you think, oh, my Lord, this is going to be terrible and brutal, and I, I, I hope it doesn't go where I'm thinking it might. And then she starts to sing, mm-hmm. and that whole room, the whole th- he's able to make the, the, the atmosphere in the room believable to the audience, at least to me. Gentlemen, a little pearl washed ashore by the tide of war. Sag den Herrschaften guten Tag. Guten Tag. It's true, the little lady has her limitations. As a matter of fact, she has absolutely no talent at all. Except that is, well, maybe a little uh, natural talent. can't dance, she can't tell any jokes, and she can't balance rubber balls on her little nose. Ah, but she can sing like a bird. She has a throat of gold. Come on, honey, sing us a song.
Und als man ihm die Botschaft bracht, dass sein Herz Liebchen im Sterben lag, da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Ach, bitte Mutter, bring ein Licht, mein Liebchen stirbt, ich seh es nicht. I was in the room with them. I mean, I felt like I was there. I, I felt it. Yes. Like, personally. I and couldn't agree more. And that has to be almost impossible to do with the film. But I, that I just, sure did it for me. It's almost like a magic trick that he pulled off there. It's it's kind of amazing when you think about what what he did there because he he starts it off with Kurt Douglas going back to his sort of like command center away from the front line. And then he hears all this rabble-rousing down the street at this tavern. And then he's looking in through the window. And then we go into the tavern. And, and you think, well, what, what, what's happening here? They're just all these guys drinking. And, and there's a guy on stage who's presenting. And you think, oh, well, maybe, maybe he's going to play the piano. Or, I, you know, I'm just wondering what's happening. And then he, and then he, he brings out this young girl. And then, like, the whole tone of that changes like instantly the moment that that he brings her on stage it's like i got really scared of what was going to happen yeah it was like it got really beyond creepy yeah and, and then and then that he like he like makes you sit in that feeling for at least i don't know like a minute it felt like a long time maybe it wasn't that long i, I don't have to go back and look but and then and then she starts singing but you can't hear her and it's just you see her mouth moving And, and then they start yelling things at her, like, say, you know, speak in a civilized language and sing louder. And then, and then it's like something happens there. I'm not quite sure what he yeah. did, but the, the crowd starts to get quiet. And then she's, you start to hear her singing. 
and 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 then and then just this hush falls over all the men in there and it's completely silent except for her singing which she's a good singer but she's not amazing she's you know she's like fine but because of where they are and the circumstances they're in i think it brings every single one of those men back to like some kind of level of humanity and remembering yeah. like their family and remembering their home and remembering that they had a life outside of this and it completely takes them out of the moment of being in this war and they're crying and like like almost everybody in there has tears in their eyes i had tears in my eyes watching it and then then we switch back outside of the tavern and douglas's character gets a message that they've got to go back to the front immediately and he looks mm-hmm. he looks back in and you can hear the singing and it's quiet in there except for the singing and he says well let's just give them a few more minutes he doesn't want to he doesn't want to break that moment for them yeah and but then he turns and starts walking back to his command post and he he has this look on his face of like cold stoicism like he he's got to get mentally back into that place of having to go back to the front line and you you see that like on his face like it's 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 an instantaneously instantaneous thing that happens on his face it's just one of the best that whole section there's probably one of the best three minutes of film that i've ever seen i couldn't agree more and 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 everybody involved in it just was perfect they were perfect in the way they 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 carried that out and he was perfect as the way he sort of marched back into his quarters. Oh yeah, and that big leather coat. I think Kurt Douglas was the perfect choice for that role because he's yeah. on the one hand he can be so like personable and his face can be so friendly when he smiles. You know, he just looks like he's somebody you'd want to have yep. as your best friend, and you just want to go hang out, go camping with them or something. And then, and then when he looks like that, <laughs> you just think, "Oh man, I don't want He's this like, guy as my enemy. Like he could break my neck you know, in an instant." Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's just a brilliant film. I obviously uh, my rating on it's a ten. It's just clearly, it, it's just it's a perfect film. Yeah, for the message that it brings. And uh, as I was watching it, I thought, this is the kind of film that Stanley Kubrick was just perfect at. And I was thinking Stanley Kramer also could have done something like this. Oh, yeah. True, true. Because, you see, he was shortly to come out with Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, what was your rating, he yeah, asked? Yeah, I would give it a 10. <laughs> 10. The, only, the only thing that, that, <sighs> that, that I thought about in the film as I was watching it was, that, was the way that um, George McCready's character was so pompous. And... And I, I, as I was watching, I was thinking, is it is it like is it overdone? Is it is he being, is he like overacting almost a little bit? And then I and then as I watched it, I realized that no, he, he's this is actually how he would have been, you know, growing up in the military, constantly fighting to try to get ahead and and get the next promotion, and basically doing anything and everything that he could do, yeah. to 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 get ahead, regardless of what that meant for other people. And that he was so sure of himself that he couldn't believe that anybody would be disloyal or anybody would question him or any, how could anybody do that? And, and, you know, that scene at the end when they're having that, that breakfast and, um, and Manju, Manju basically 
tells him without really saying it that you're screwed. You know, I'm going to release all this to the public and your career is over. And so I, I changed my initial impression of him to think that, no, that's a pretty realistic interpretation of how that character would have been, I think. <laughs> he was perfectly cast in that role, too. <clears throat> he looked like a he looked like a, a general in real life in the in the in the film roles. He's, he always has that sort of very elegant upper crust. Uh, I'm I'm better than most people. He was great. I mean, I could really dissect his performance because there was another scene where uh, they they had decided to have this court martial and um, uh, Kurt Douglas kind of walked out and then went up these stairs to kind of relay the orders to some of his direct command. Yes. People. And, yes. Yeah. And, and McCready was that was that was the one time during the film that I felt like he was he was panicking a little bit because he knew that some of those folks heard him say that he should fi- they should fire the shells on his own trenches. And he, he wanted to transfer that one guy out of the company, like immediately, one of the guys that would have yeah. been able to say something about what had happened. And, and, and then he went up the stairs and like basically sort of had this tirade against Douglas. And that was the one time where I felt like he was really rattled. Like he, he thought, I got to, I got to, do everything I can here to cover this up. Yeah, that's the, there's so many good scenes like that in the film that are just so real to me. They seem so, that they would have actually happened. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. So yeah, this was a really good good yeah. choice. Good choice. Very intense. Definitely. We have one more. We have one more intense film coming up. Our next podcast is uh, the Spiral Staircase, and I watched it again yesterday to kind of refresh my memory from when I'd seen it before. It's it's a it's a really really well done film. Takes it's almost like it could have been on a stage but it takes place most of it in this large gothic dimly lit old home. Ooh. And uh, it's seen it. it's uh, pretty spooky. It's an early version of a psychopath of one of the first times it was put on film like this. Ooh. Cool. And then we lighten it up. Let me just review here quickly. Following the spiral staircase, we're going to see if we can't do Hondo, the John Wayne 3D film from 1953, and then a whole bunch of Western musical comedies. Annie, Get Your Gun, Calamity Jane, Paint Your Wagon, with Lee Marvin and, and Clint Eastwood <laughs> doing a little singing, which in itself is unique, <laughs> and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, yeah, and the sound of music, so yeah. we'll lighten up. We'll We're lighten finally going to do the bit. sound of music. I figure, like, if we've done Star Wars, then we can do the sound of music. <laughs> I know. And who was it that directed that? Robert Wise. Robert Wise. What a yeah. talent! Yep. Our favorite. Another really good anti-war message movie too. Yeah. So. Yeah, in a completely different way. But, oh, totally. But, yeah. Totally. All right. All right. Well, that was a really good movie, and it's always fun talking to you about about movies, Dad. <laughs> oh, this is our 209th podcast, I think, so we keep rolling along. I was looking at about 100 different film titles yesterday, and I thought, I better stop now at 7 that I sent you last night. That should be enough. Yeah, I found, I, you going. sent me that list of musicals, and then I... Um, found one that I but I couldn't find where we could actually watch it but it was it looked kind of interesting um, and now I probably won't be able to remember what it was let me hang on just a second I'm gonna my video is gonna turn off but okay um, 
Let's see if I can find There's this. a lot of those musicals. This was from the 1937, ones I found. and it's called Ready, Willing, and Able with Ruby Keeler, Lee Dixon, and Alan Jenkins. Wow. And, that would be good. And it's got, well, I can't find any place to watch it, but it's got this amazing scene of these two people dancing on a gigantic typewriter, and the the things that strike the paper are are women's legs. And it's it's crazy. <laughs> I'll have to send you the link to the YouTube video where it has it. But uh, Yeah, and then I'll, I'll scout around. Maybe I can locate it somewhere. It doesn't uh, get like super high reviews. That's one that my but, friend doesn't even have. Yeah, it, I, I don't oh, think it gets wow. super high reviews, but it the set design was incredible. Like just like how did they get a soundstage big enough to build some of this stuff? It's kind of like a rear window when they built that whole courtyard in, in indoors. <laughs> Ruby Keeler. It must have been an MGM uh, movie to be that big and and that big an area. They love to do musicals. Oh, and this was like, yeah, they they didn't they didn't hold back on on this one. It looks like, um, yeah. So anyway, maybe something. Well, for the, the ones future. I, the ones I picked are all available. Uh, I, I, now I've I finally learned that if I'm going to put together the list, I need to also make sure that we can find it, and it's either uh, no cost or a low cost streaming, and all of the ones that I sent you oh, are yeah, very that's access, accessible. Yeah. Well, we still, if we ever do find that Jean Moreau movie. Um, um, oh, yeah. I Every time I look on HBO Max, I see I look to see if it's showing up. What's it called? Black? Um, the Bride Wore Black. The Bride Wore Black, yeah. we got to watch that. We'll have to, we'll have to do a special podcast just for that. <laughs> Maybe a patron bonus show. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. All right. Well, uh, fun talking to you. Coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles is Bob uh, wishing everybody happy movie watching.